This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. Some of you listening to this podcast will be a bit uncomfortable with patriotism. Samuel Johnson may have said it was the last refuge of the scoundrel. So why is the left suspicious of it? Should we learn to love our country? And if so, how, given the state it's in? Sunder Katwala is the author of How to Be a Patriot and joins me in the studio. Welcome to The Bunker, Sunder. Great to be here. Sunder, would you always have described yourself as a patriot? I don't know if I'd have used the term when I was growing up, and I would have had some sense of distance as well from some of the ideas that I saw of what people thought they were doing to be patriotic. But I started off, I think, quite naive about all of this as a seven or eight-year-old. and It was a year when we won the Eurovision Song Contest uh, with Bucks Fizz and going to the World Cup and uh, those kinds of things. Royal Wedding, I remember watching Charles and Diana. It was pretty boring. But um, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that anybody would want to sort of exclude people like me. I was mixed race, uh, Indian dad, Irish mother growing up sort of Irish Catholic. I wouldn't have known as a seven or eight year old that that was the issue. By the time I'm a teenager, I obviously get a sense that these things, patriotism, British, who counts, who doesn't, are quite contested. Um, and so, the, the, you know, the book I've written is quite a personal story as well. But I, if you go to school in the 1980s, um, go to university, get out into the adult world in the 1990s, I certainly saw things softening and opening up in this country for everybody and maybe especially for people like me. That was partly about sport, wasn't it? It seemed to be easier to be maybe patriotic through sport. Sport's really important, but what what I was aware of, I think, you know, badgered my dad to take me to real football matches. My dad knew everything about cricket and nothing at all about football from the age of about seven. I was probably a bit naive about the football culture of the mid-1980s. So we associated English identity and football, particularly on some of the club identities, with the worst forms of xenophobia. I was introduced to very overt racism by going to football, but also to anti-racism. So I would have felt pretty... Uh, Awkward thinking about going to an England match, certainly going to an England away match where the form seemed to be you'd sort of march around Europe singing, you know, if it wasn't for the English, you'd be Krauts followed by a Nazi salute, which makes you slightly wonder which side people are imagining they're on in the Second World War. And I was part of sort of groups that were trying to think about how that could change. And when I was 22, when Euro 96 happened, it, it absolutely broke through. It was transformed that summer compared to you know, the summer before as to what was the dominant atmosphere like at football. So football was an experience for me of racism, anti-racism, but also of realising you could change the atmosphere or what, it, what people said. And it's powerful football because the players represent us 
11 people, but the fans represent us. So if some people are welcome or some people aren't, that, that's important. I've, you know, me and my daughters followed the lionesses around and you know, none of those old anxieties were to be seen you know, when the lionesses were winning last summer. The problem with patriotism, though, is that it's not just about sport, in a way. If it was, it would be a lot easier, I think. There's just supporting England or Wales or Scotland or Northern Ireland or Britain in sports matches. And most of us are just kind of fine with that. But there's another kind of patriotism, which is my country, right or wrong, isn't there. How do you negotiate the kind of differences between that? Do you sometimes feel that patriotism is getting very hard to define? I mean, there were lots of ink spilt on the question of nationalism and patriotism and good versions and bad versions. Is it all bad? Is some of it good? Do you need the good versions to rescue the bad versions? Some people have been suspicious about the sporting versions in the sense that, you know, really it's a sort of disguised Nuremberg rally after all. I mean, Orwell's brilliant on patriotism. He didn't like the sporting version. He says it's war minus the shooting. War minus the shootings. <laughs> Better than war with the shooting, you, you might think. So, But there, there are two objections. One is that it's just a really dangerous thing to have and that the, the way it creates an irrational, emotional um, commitment, right or wrong, is bad. And another sort of more modern objection is it's just silly. Why would you identify with the place you happen to be born in? What's that got to do with anything? And um, I, think, I think that last version is a bit unthinking, but the, the version where it's dangerous clearly important. And then the question becomes, do you do you want to sort of try and move beyond it, transcend it, get out of it, persuade us not to have that? Or do you need to contest it, have the right versions of patriotism? I'm quite sceptical that these sorts of post-national kind of John Lennon imagine type, you know, imagine there aren't any countries, are ever going to really appeal to anything more than a sort of vanguard fringe. So that, that for me becomes a reason to get patriotism right. This is a strange emotion, isn't it? And you know it when you feel it. And Personally, I sometimes feel uncomfortable when I feel it. And you know, I think, what's going on here? I was reading uh, my son, one of Dominic Sandbrook's books about the Second World War the other week, and they were describing D-Day. I think, this is actually making me feel quite patriotic. Why does it make me feel patriotic? What does that leave? What's that effect is that going to have on me? And I, can't, I think this is part of the problem the left sometimes has with it, because you feel like, oh, this is a worrying emotion. I need to interrogate it. Maybe I need to quell it. Do you feel that as well? I think that that kind of worry that it's emotional and not rational is part of it. Um, and, you know, what it what it's about is it's about a feeling of belonging and attachment to the place you're from and the place you call home. Now, you might then think on the left, well, I bet this will become quite exclusive then. I think what's underlying that objection is the sense that it means superior um, because things that are special to me are special to me, like, you know, my kids are special to me. Are my kids superior to the kids of next door? Well, you need sort of systems at schools that treat my kids and other people's kids fairly. Is it is it somehow dangerous to have things that are special to you, like the town you're from or where your parents are from or where you grew up? Should you be trying to become a person that has absolutely equal sympathy for every other individual on the planet, it, it seems absolutely impossible to actually do it. And, and you know, patriotism could be something that drives some commitments from the left to sort of put right the things that are wrong with the place you care about. How do you know when patriotism is becoming nationalism? Is it when politics starts to creep in? I think politics is part of the danger here because um, the version of patriotism that I think is incredibly important in diverse liberal democracies is the version where people get to become us 
and we mean it, rather than that, you know, you give someone a passport and say, well, you'll never really be Italian, will you? You need 15 generations to really be Italian. If you have the version where people can really become us, that's a really valuable thing to have. How that works in practice, Britain turns out to be pretty good at this without ever actually having kind of tried as policy. And why, why, is, why is Britain quite good at this? It might be that Britain has always been this slightly fuzzy thing for three centuries since we had the United Kingdom. They always had Scotland and Wales and sometimes a bit of Ireland in it. Um, and that, that makes it easier. So I think the version that is dangerous is the version that says it's them or us. Some of us are us. New people will never be us. And if you're the kind of us that likes the incomers too, you're not really us either. And you could see that in the politics right now of Poland, of Hungary, of um, uh, of India, actually, um, in terms of a different idea of India. And what I think you've got in America and Britain in different ways is quite a strong competition now as to which version of identity is going to prevail. Some of the ways in which people express patriotism as well as sport is through the monarchy. And you write a bit about this in your book. And of course, for the past couple of years, it's felt, I suppose, as though the monarchy has been even more of a part of Britishness than it usually is. Can you be patriotic without supporting the monarchy? Oh, definitely. I mean, definitely. And people always have been. I think, um, I mean, I changed my mind about this when I was 18. I would have thought it's really common sense to get rid of it. How can you have the hereditary principle? And I, I sort of realised most people didn't agree with that and decided it didn't really matter that much. Because if you thought it was a symbol of class hierarchy or the constitution, actually, you could change the politics of you know, Thatcher or not Thatcher or the constitution if you wanted to. So, so it's very symbolic. But I've come to value it more, I think, since we've had this much more polarised politics of the last decade. I think, of course, if you're in the quarter of people who don't want it, um, you can you can be patriotic. You could say, I'd be much prouder of my country if we didn't have all of these costumes and silly things going on. I think I think the deal there is you should accept that you can have your republic with whatever it means when you've persuaded your fellow citizens. And if you think everyone else is an absolute idiot and a dupe for propaganda, if they believe in it and you can't respect the support for it, then that's a problem. But also you should have the right. I don't think, you know, I worry about the policing of the coronation because a, a constitutionally democratic monarchy just needs sustained and broad consent. It doesn't need universal allegiance. It should be quite comfortable with people saying, not my king. Or, or whatever. So I think there's a deal to be struck there about disagreeing well about it. Surprisingly, the place that has got that right in the last several years, which is the last place you'd expect to, is Northern Ireland, where there's become this real sort of emphasis on the civility of recognising why something might matter to your neighbours that doesn't matter for you. And then there's a sort of awkward deal about how do you respect other people's traditions. Yeah, there was a lot of talk after the Queen died, especially, that her dying really had helped to show how Britain could come together and agree on something after the divisions that we just, you know, you just mentioned about about Brexit. And you have some quite hard lessons for the Remain campaign in your book. Um, that's informed by your own family in Billerike, isn't it? In Essex, because you often do you often do Twitter threads where you <laughs> explain what they're thinking and talking about. <laughs> Yeah, and the you know the view. I mean, I, I voted for Remain. Um, my in-laws voted to leave very much so. My, my father-in-law's view was very much that if we'd listened to him in 1975, then we wouldn't have had 40 years of all of this trouble. So he didn't need to think about it. What 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 he was right about, I thought, was that once we'd agreed to hold this referendum, um, and we got the result, 
then you had to agree to the results. So rejoin, it felt to me, was a really legitimate campaign. Once we left, it might take you 40 years. Like it took the other side 40 years to get out. After they lost, it might take you 10 years. But that was fine. But but Remain wasn't wasn't fine anymore. And what what was interesting to me about Brexit, I mean, you know, we have that referendum. It's very close, 52-48. We're much more divided by it three years later than we were actually in the campaign because it's hard to know if you're on one side. But a lot of people found that quite a difficult decision. And about four out of 10 people say they literally made up their minds in the final three weeks. Um, three years later, 90% of people identify with the vote that they cast. And that's because we've got labels for each other. And, you know, lever means, you know, misguided idiot that believes in uh, lies. And remainer means, you know, arrogant snobs who won't do democratic things even when you've clearly won. So that I think was a was a problem. I think, you know, the Remain campaign doesn't get a majority consent. It has an incredibly thin argument. It doesn't say anything about identity. It doesn't think it can talk about identity and patriotism. I think that was a that was a mistake. They couldn't have, you know, massive sort of European rallies for European identity in 2016 if they hadn't been working on that for a few years. But they could have tried to talk about what it would have been to be a confident Britain that didn't feel being in this club with France and Germany and Italy was a threat to their Britishness. They didn't do that at all. They just said, maybe you can't afford to jump off the cliff. Are you sure you can dare? And that, that, that just fell a bit short. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You say at one point in the book, I doubt I would need the fingers of both hands to count the number of black and Asian Britons I've met who express a strong sense of European identity, which is an indictment, isn't it, of Remain as well and its well, ability to reach out. That's the imagined idea of what we're talking about when we talk about Europe. And Europe, I think, sounds like a wider concept than, than Britishness does. I was very pro-European, uh, you know, when Hugo Young was writing about the history of Britain and Europe. I was quite convinced by that kind of political story. But then I, I don't think I'd have said, you know, if I'd been in Belgium or France or Germany, I feel really European here. I feel this is shared culture. But I would have, I was persuaded by the by the argument. So European identity, identification feels quite distant. In this sense, the British ethnic minority is just a bit more like the rest of the British because not many... Not many yeah. white British people feel very European either. But that's that's where there was a significant emotional gap, I think, between white liberal Remainers who felt that we'd been having 40 and 50 years of debate about race and identity and migration, that the chips had all come down on the table at this moment. So, of course, black and Asian people would be totally on their side and then surprised to find that people were just saying, well, what's it about then? And why do you think so? You'd be very 
suspicious of Enoch Powell and Nigel Farage, but still not think that maybe European free movement is your favourite immigration policy. But there's, there's a real distance, I think, from those Remain movements and campaigns that were very liberal, very pro-diversity and very white and, and black and Asian Britain. And this this made me think about why, why did I feel differently about it? And, you know, with hate crime, be people more worried about that, some evidence of surges of that after the referendum. I think it comes down to what you think the ballot paper said. And I thought the ballot paper said, it's 2016 now, shall we leave or not? You know, it might cost us more, it might cost us less, let's make a new decision, have new arrangements. Or did it mean turn the clock back? It's going to be 1972 now. And I think people who were most upset and scared really felt that a lot of people had voted for bring back 1972. But the changes I'd seen at Goodison Park in Everton, uh, you know, uh, Wembley Stadium and so on, they hadn't been a shared European project. If I'd been working on gender identity or clean beaches, I might have said, we've made so much progress in Europe, we're going to lose it. We didn't make the progress we made on race and identity as part of a shared project with the European Union and with other countries because there was just a lag really in terms of that inclusive anti-racist identity in other West European countries. Because there was an argument that says, well, freedom of movement for Europeans is great, but um, look at Windrush, look at the way that um, black and Asian Britons are treated and the fact that our immigration policy is clearly biased towards Europeans. Do we actually want to be that country? And that's a very valid argument, but actually it, it isn't one that seems to have got made. There were two principled arguments with, for freedom of movement, which are both incredibly difficult to make in Britain. One is something like Europeans prefer Europeans because we're all European, um, which depends on you feeling quite strongly European and depends on you saying um, you know, Polish, Romanian, Italian, French, Belgian people are, are more us than Indian, Australian, Canadian people. And Britain's got a sort of foot in both camps. And the other one is, um, which um, sort of strong pro-Europeans in Europe used to say this to me all the time, Sunder, why don't we say to people it's not immigration at all? It's just internal citizen mobility. And then I'd say, well, that's <laughs> like, that's, you know, that's going to be really <laughs> difficult to explain on the radio because if people understood it they'd be really annoyed you're saying well, you know, why do you think you've got this thing called a country why do you think uh, Polish and Hungarian people which you know, people welcome them and want their kids to be British as well but why, why do you think you're not just all part of a country called Europe I don't, I don't think we should start saying that so there was, a, there was another good case that actually most black and Asian people who voted voted remain in the end there was a good case which is just these are the rules of the club and I don't want to trade in the market access so I suppose I've got to take the club rules which was the very transactional, pragmatic reason that Britain was in. But actually, particularly if you're from an ethnic minority background, you're you're dealing with the fact that you don't really trust the long history of what the Eurosceptic movement has been talking about in the era of Enoch Powell or in the era of Nigel Farage, with the fact that you're not particularly convinced by this deal and whether it's in your national interest. So being patriotic, can it actually be a useful sentiment when it comes to trying to keep hold of the things that this country perhaps has been good at, but maybe isn't quite so good at anymore. I suppose I'm thinking especially of the NHS. But also, I always think the times, weirdly, when I feel most patriotic are at a big station. It's usually Euston. I, don't, I, I guess I know why it's Euston, but that's another story where you're seeing all the all the departure boards and all the places you can go and all these parts of Britain and there's announcements and there's something for me very stirring about being in a station and being able to go to those things. And that basically comes down to a love, which I know not everyone shares, of British railways. <laughs> uh, so is there, is there a use that patriotism can have that in, in that way? 
One of, one of the things I think I want to say to the sort of the liberal side of this debate and the left side of this debate is is let's not take too much out to be inclusive. So the thing we have to take out is bloodlines. Can't have bloodlines. But then we'll sort of say as a cliche, you know, blood and soil isn't that terrible. That's Hitler. Well, soil isn't blood. And place is a thing we can keep in. And place really matters. And place can be inclusive. And I, I think people on the left have less problems with the sort of civic patriotism of Manchester welcomes people who want to be proud of Manchester and here's what that means and that's what London does. But you can do that at a national level as well. And I think proximity of place really matters because in the end there's a lot dividing Scotland about whether to be part of the United Kingdom or, or not and it might be 50-50 but people are Scots and they are living together and actually they've got a lot in common in their cultural idea of what it is to be Scottish. That's also true in Northern Ireland in a, in a more contested, you know, post-conflict society. And so I think those things we can share, not everyone has to agree on everything, although you probably do have to queue or you'll annoy people, but you don't have to like cricket specifically or football specifically. But if you can do things together with people you don't agree with, you get out of where America is going because it's got fewer of these shared institutions where really red America and blue America just see the world really differently and therefore we're in an existential battle for whose America it is. The trouble is that when you talk about getting rid of bloodlines, there's so much in British society that may not touch a lot of people, but is still intrinsic to the way people think about Britain. And, you know, there are still hereditary peers in the House of Lords. Um, there are still people still buy Tatler magazine with its, you know, obsession with bloodlines and aristocracy. How how do we move beyond that? Because it feels as though in some ways we are just as much enthralled to all that kind of thing as we ever were. That's again the sort of Downton Abbey things and yeah. you know, four weddings and a funeral. And I mean, I don't, I don't have a big, I don't have a big problem with that. I think one thing, one thing, New Labour got wrong, and I felt it being inclusive at that time, although Britpop slightly preceded New Labour and was doing some of the work for them. But I think what New Labour was saying was they were saying the future or the past. In order to have this shiny, new, modern, young Britain, you know, can you forget about all of that history? It's just baggage. It's weighing us down. I think it's what the Remainers are saying as well. And what I think Danny Boyle does much better than New Labour, because the Dome then doesn't have anything to say. So it's a new millennium, but it's got no roots in anything. What Danny Boyle offers you is a different story. Is you take the green and pleasant land, you take the industrial revolution, you take the traditional and the modern culture, and you go through the centuries, then this is us. And that modern Britain isn't some betrayal or break with its history. It actually arises from its history. And if you want to look into the history of empire and decolonization and immigration, the sort of you know, who let you lot in and why are you here, you can you need to know your history. And this is a distinct point about British ethnic minorities is that that from the Windrush generation themselves who you know have served in the RAF, coming to Britain, have been taught all this propaganda in the schools. They don't know it hasn't been taught in the London schools and the Birmingham schools. That's a moment of shock and disillusion. And then you know, in the new century, after a lifetime, that's still the question you don't count. But British minorities have doubled down on British identity and said to other people, you should know your history. Why don't you know the history of monarchy and Commonwealth and so on if you're asking why are we here? And I don't think you see, particularly in Western Europe, minority groups with that level of confidence in their stake to say this is as British as you can get. You know, my parents are Indian and Irish. They came to work for the National Health Service. Obviously, I'm British. What's everyone else's credential? So you claim, you make the quite strong claim that uh, being patriotic could end, help end the culture war. 
that seems a big leap in some ways, especially at the moment. How how could it do that? It can help. It can help draw the boundaries a bit. Everyone knows how to end the culture wars, which is that the people who don't agree with them should shut up. And so it's a sort of call for sort of universal disarmament. And the the right is bemused that the left thinks that the culture wars are cooked up in Downing Street as a political tactic. There's a bit of that because they'll say we're not the people taking down all the statues, are we? Surely it's you that are doing it. So if you want to be serious about ending the culture wars, the only useful thing you can do is talk about what your tribes, your causes can do for a more civil, disagree well politics that doesn't give up on your causes. When I say this, people say, you know, do I need to bin all of my anti-racism, all of my climate campaigning? You don't. But you do have to think about whether or not Always polarising, always turning up the heat is your mode of how we'll get there. And it's particularly valuable, I think, not to do this on issues of identity. If it wants to do this on issues of climate change, maybe it's a tactic as to whether to do it or not. It's dangerous on issues of identity to think that turning up the heat and the volume is the way to win. So if you ask people what makes us British, you know, pick from various things, people often pick respect for the views of people you don't agree with. And that's, so that's we've got this self-image of ourselves as a sort of put the kettle on and talk it through society. We haven't exactly been behaving like that for the last four or five years. So I think out of that big Brexit split came that sense that we could have a look at having a politics where you stop trying to persuade anybody and you just try and get the people who already agree with you to vote in larger numbers. That is a dangerous form of politics to come in. So we want, I think we want more bridging, more reaching out to the places you're weaker as well as the places you're stronger. Thunder, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much. How to Be a Patriot is published by Harper North. And if you enjoyed today's bunker, why not express your support in the most meaningful way possible and back us from as little as £3 a month. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Bunker was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.